Good morning, everyone, and, and welcome to the, uh, uh, to the Atlantic Council this morning. Uh, uh, my name is Magnus Nordeman. I'm the Deputy Director for the Brent Scowcroft Center here at the Atlantic Council and also the Director for our Transatlantic Security Initiative here at the Council. Uh, I'm standing, uh, standing in for our President and CEO, Fred Kemp, um, who had an uh, unforeseen and, and sudden change to his schedule, which meant that he couldn't make, uh, make it today. He, he sends his, his apologies and, uh, and greetings to the... Uh, to all of you here today. So we're delighted to have you here for, the, uh, for today's launch of our new report, Mediterranean Futures 2030, towards a transatlantic security strategy. Um, and we're so pleased to have so many prominent voices on the Mediterranean and Southern Europe and, and North Africa and the Middle East with us here to, uh, um, uh, today. And of course, among them is Ambassador Sandy Birschbauer, former Deputy Secretary General of NATO, uh, and our new distinguished fellow here at, uh, here at the Atlantic Council. And we're, we're, so, we're so excited to have him on our, uh, on our team. Um, I also want to welcome Ambassador Armando Verricchio of Italy, um, who will share his thoughts and perspectives on securing the Mediterranean from, um, from, uh, from Italy's vantage point. Uh, and Ambassador, thank you so much for, for being with us this morning. Um, I also want to welcome uh, Dr. Amanda Sloat, um, former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Southern Europe and Mediterranean Affairs, uh, who will give us a U.S. perspective on the Mediterranean uh, and the importance of transatlantic cooperation and partnership in, in, in working, working on all the different challenges that we currently see in the region. So, th so thank you all for, um, uh, for, for our speakers for being here this morning. Um, I also want to give a huge tip hat to my, uh, my co-author, really lead author for, for this report, Lisa, um, Lisa Aronson, who will discuss some of the findings and conclusions from the, from the report um, on, the, uh, on the panel, uh, and, uh, 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 and she's the real expert here, but if warranted, I will certainly also jump in from the, from the floor during the, during the Q&A. Uh, um, obviously, we think this report could not come at a more uh, important time, both here in Washington, but, but also, for, um, um, also for Europe. We're in the midst of a, uh, uh, of a period of growing uncertainty uh, in the transatlantic community. Well, at the same time that we face some of the um, some of the greatest challenges to peace and security in Europe since the end of the Cold War, um, uh, we're, we all know about the East. We're not here to discuss that today. Um, but obviously, terrorism and, and migration flows and, and instability uh, that is flowing into Europe's southern neighborhood have inflamed political divides on both sides of the Atlantic and, and strained resources throughout much of Europe. Uh, and obviously, we also have new political uncertainty here in Washington and the future of U.S. leadership role in Europe and, and more broadly globally. Um, the Mediterranean is a region in flux and will continue to be a crucial focal point for transatlantic uh, uh, engagement. But in order to create a viable security strategy uh, to put the region on a, uh, a long-term path of st uh, peace, stability, and prosperity, um, we need a number of actors to work together, uh, whether that is NATO, the EU, uh, the countries in the region, of course, and also important external actors that, uh, uh, that work both globally and in the region. So I think this report makes a, makes a valuable contribution towards that end and, and helps us lift our eyes beyond the current headlines this week or, or, or this month to look at some of the, the long-term drivers of change in the Mediterranean and, and how they may impact security and, and developments in the region um, out to, uh, out to 20, uh, 2030. And that obviously includes demographic shifts, uh, uh, security concerns, economic uh, uncertainty, and, and, um, and climate change. So today's discussion and conversation here, uh, both with the panelists, but also with you and the audience, um, will explore these themes and, and, uh, and expand them, and, and, uh, and we hope lay, uh, lay the groundwork for a, uh, a long-term um, strategy for, for securing the, the broader Mediterranean, uh, Mediterranean region. 
Um, our event will begin with keynote remarks by Ambassador Verspau, follow, um, followed by a panel discussion with Ambassador Verico, um, Vericchio, Dr. Sloat, and, uh, and Lisa Aronson. Um, uh, and following that discussion, we'll have a Q&A. Again, we, we want to engage you in this conversation, so please, uh, uh, please, many and, and, uh, and good questions. Um, we also encourage uh, uh, those who are watching this from home or at their desks via, via the internet to, to follow along and participate. Um, you can follow us on Twitter through at AC, uh, AC Scowcroft and using the hashtag MedFutures. Um, and to close the event today, we want to do something a little different. Um, uh, and we, I think we have something quite unique for you. Our, uh, our talented Atlantic Council Senior Fellow Jasmine Al-Gamal, uh, together with Ida Mikkelboost, um, uh, have a short but, um, video presentation uh, on migration and the refugee crisis in the region. Uh, and they are drawing on their first-hand uh, experience working with refugees um, and listening to some of their uh, uh, stories uh, that, that are quite uh, quite impactful in, in my mind. Um, and I think this will offer a unique perspective on the human side uh, of all these issues, which is sometimes uh, easily forgotten uh, here, here in Washington and, uh, and elsewhere as we, as we discuss these, these very important uh, issues. Um, but to kick us off, we have, uh, we have Ambassador Sandy Burschbau, who obviously throughout his distinguished career, uh, career most uh, recently as Deputy Secretary General of NATO, uh, has been a true champion and friend of the transatlantic relationship and a prominent voice uh, on the issues that, that faces Europe's and, and NATO South. Uh, prior to his post at NATO, Ambassador Verschbau served for three years as U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, where he was responsible for coordinating U.S. security and defense poli uh, policies relating to both nations and international organizations such as NATO and, and also in the Middle East and Africa. Um, ambassador Verschbau has been a career member of the U.S. Foreign, Foreign Service and has served as an ambassador to NATO, to the Russian Federation, and to the, to the Republic of Korea. So as you can see, quite, quite an impressive resume. Uh, and, and broad experience from, from around the world. Um, and obviously throughout his career, Sandy has been centrally involved in strengthening U.S. defense relations with our allies in Europe and Asia and helping to transform NATO and, uh, and other secure organizations to meet post-Cold War challenges. So we're so delighted to have him here today to offer his thoughts. And again, Sandy, also I want to extend my, uh, my thanks and welcome for, for joining our team here at the Atlantic Council. Sandy, please. Thank you very much, Magnus. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's a real pleasure and an honor for me, uh, first of all, to be here at the Atlantic Council, but also to make some introductory comments in connection with the launch of the Atlantic Council's Mediterranean Futures 2030 report. The security interests of uh, the transatlantic community and the Mediterranean have been closely intertwined for centuries, going back to the days of the Barbary pirates and even beyond, but never more intertwined than today. Uh, Despite the high hopes of the Arab Spring, the current decade has seen increasing turbulence along the southern rim of the Mediterranean. Uh, this has been the source of a host of security challenges with which you are all very familiar. Regional conflicts, failing states, economic stagnation, the spread of jihadi terrorist groups, and these have all fueled the flow of refugees and illegal migrants on a scale not seen since the end of World War II. These trends have also contributed to the rise of populism and nationalism in our own countries, which threatened to undermine the traditional values of openness and tolerance on both sides of the Atlantic, and which could put transatlantic unity and indeed the future of the European project itself uh, at risk. So a fresh look at the security situation in the Mediterranean region, at the drivers of instability and the effects of different courses of action or inaction 
by the, by the transatlantic community uh, is very timely. The Mediterranean Futures Report and today's discussion uh, can hopefully help the United States and its European allies and partners come up with a more effective strategy for the region to include an enhanced role for the two key institutions, NATO and the European Union. Now, the Mediterranean as a regional construct has been uh, on the agenda of NATO and the EU for over two decades, but unfortunately the results have been rather meager. Both institutions launched Mediterranean initiatives in the mid-90s in the uh, hopeful aftermath of the Oslo peace accords, with the divisive Ar uh, Arab-Israeli dispute supposedly on its way to resolution, both NATO and the EU saw a strategic opportunity to expand political, economic, and military cooperation across the Mediterranean. And the rationale was quite simple. Uh, our own security could only be strengthened if our neighbors across the Med were more stable, more prosperous, and better governed, and more capable of providing for their own security. So the EU launched the Barcelona process in 1995, which ultimately evolved into the Union for the Mediterranean 13 years later, with the ambitious goal of integrating the EU's 28 member states and 15 Mediterranean partners in a web of practical and institutional relationships. Many worthwhile programs and projects have taken place, but it's fair to say that the initiative did not have much of uh, an effect in countering the forces of disintegration and radicalization that have now uh, overwhelmed the region. NATO's Mediterranean Dialogue, launched in 1994, had a more modest ambition, uh, and it engaged a smaller group of seven partners, Jordan, Egypt, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, Mauritania, and Israel. The Mediterranean Dialogue provided the framework for some interesting political exchanges and practical cooperation on defense reform and interoperability. It even encouraged several Arab partners to contribute to NATO operations in the Balkans and later in Afghanistan. But it never achieved anywhere near the impact of NATO's European partnerships. While counterterrorism was added to the agenda after 9-11, and while NATO established a similar mechanism uh, for engaging with the Gulf states, uh, the Istanbul Cooperation Initiative, the MD and the ICI remained largely talking shops. Now, with the escalation uh, of the threats from the South in the last two, three years, including the spread of ISIS, foreign fighters, and uncontrolled migration, I think the time has come for both NATO and the EU to make another go at engaging their Mediterranean neighbors, and perhaps for the two institutions to join their efforts to a greater degree than they've attempted before. A more integrated NATO-EU effort to address the root causes of terrorism and instability along their Mediterranean frontier could give new credibility to both organizations. It could also be part of the answer to the Trump administration's claims that America's European allies aren't doing enough to address the major security challenges of our time. Now, there's no need to start from scratch. 2016 saw decisions uh, that could serve as the basis for a new NATO-EU Mediterranean strategy. Uh, at the NATO summit in Warsaw last July, the headlines focused on bolstering NATO's deterrence and defense posture on the eastern flank. But defense and deterrence have a southern dimension as well. Uh, allies agreed to establish a hub for the south within the NATO command structure and to maintain the capacity to project power and manage crises along NATO's periphery if necessary. But when it comes to the south, allies also agreed at Warsaw that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. 
And that's why they adopted a set of initiatives under the, the banner of projecting stability, which are especially relevant for the Mediterranean. This includes a new maritime security mission, Sea Guardian, that's, that is supporting the EU and member states in trying to control illegal migration in the Aegean and Central Mediterranean. And it involves increased use of defense capacity building to train partner forces, to promote defense reforms, and to help in countering uh, IEDs so that partners are more capable of maintaining stability and countering ISIS on their own. So these are, I think, positive steps on which to build, but so far they're very modest in scale. Uh, allies need to generate far more resources and political will for these programs to have a real strategic impact on security and stability in the region. For example, NATO could become the, the trainer-in-chief uh, for the anti-ISIS coalition, perhaps starting in Libya, excuse, perhaps starting in Iraq and moving on to Libya, uh, building on the success of its large-scale defense capacity building mission in Afghanistan. Now, another key outcome of the Warsaw Summit was the signing of a joint declaration by the leaders of the EU, Presidents Tusk and Juncker, and NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg aimed at expanding uh, NATO-EU cooperation on a range of security issues. The inspiration for this was the need for a comprehensive approach to counter Russian hybrid warfare, but the joint declaration identified defense capacity building, security sector reform, and maritime security as potential areas for cooperation as well. Work has continued on the staff-to-staff -staff level since Warsaw, and I hope that political leaders will give more attention to NATO-EU cooperation uh, during 2017, with a particular focus on stabilizing Europe's southern neighborhood. Whether formal or informal, a joint NATO-EU Mediterranean strategy could leverage the two organizations' different strengths and their different toolkits and deliver more bang for the euro. Closer NATO-EU cooperation could also be an important tool for keeping the UK connected with its EU partners in the security and defense field following Brexit. So I'll stop there, since I know you're eager to hear from the, uh, the authors of the report and the uh, other members of our panel today. I've provided a somewhat NATO-centric perspective, uh, given my background. But that's because I believe that the alliance has been underemployed in the Mediterranean and could do a hell of a lot more on its own and working with the European Union than it is doing now. So thanks very much. I look forward to the discussion. Well, thank you, everybody, for coming. Uh, and thank you, uh, Ambassador Birschbaum, for the uh, introductory remarks. Uh, I'm uh, Dr. Aaron Stein. I'm a senior fellow here at the Atlantic Council, where I focus on Turkey, which obviously covers the Mediterranean. Uh, and I have a personal interest in this, both for my academic and, and work here at the think tank, as well as my personal interest, because I vacation uh, in southern Turkey a lot. And so obviously, I care a lot about the future of the, of the Mediterranean. Uh, Magnus uh, gave a good uh, introduction to the panelists, so I'll be very brief before I invite them up on stage. Uh, we have His, Excell His Excellency Ambassador Ar Armando Varicchio, uh, who is the Ambassador of Italy to the United States. Uh, he's been serving in this post since March 2016. Uh, we have Dr. Amanda Sloat, who is the former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Southern Europe and Eastern Mediterranean Affairs at the State Department, uh, where she, you know, her responsibility covered Turkey, Greece, and Cyprus. Uh, and then Dr. Lisa Aronson, who is the, uh, one of the primary authors of this report and is a visiting fellow at the Brent Scowcroft Center uh, uh, downstairs at the, here at the Atlantic Council, where she focuses on European defense and NATO strategy. 
So with that, I'd like to invite the panelists up to the, uh, to the stage here, and then we can begin the, the moderated discussion. it off here, we're going to start, uh, if you don't mind, I'll just call you Lisa. We'll start in the middle with Lisa, who will introduce, introduce a lot of the, 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 the summarize the report, introduce a lot of its findings uh, before turning it over to our other two panelists. So Lisa, uh, uh, don't mean to catch you with water in your mouth, but please, <laughs> when you're ready to go, uh, the, flo the floor is yours. Aaron, thank you. And thanks to all of you for, for being here. It's, um, it's a pleasure to, to present this, and I really look forward to the comments and, and feedback and to the discussion um, that, that follows. So just to give a little background on this report, um, we came up with the idea more than a year, a year and a half ago now, and there were three things that kind of inspired the project. First, it seemed that you know, we were seeing crisis headlines out of the Mediterranean almost on a daily basis. Um, and we also had the sense that um, the entire region was in, un, undergoing, in, un, experiencing kind of mounting pressure that we really wanted to try to understand. And then we looked around at other futures assessments of the Mediterranean, most of which had been written just after the Arab Spring, and we were, we were surprised to see how much optimism um, there had been. And we thought, you know, what have we got wrong about this region? Um, nearly all the futures documents coming out after the Arab Spring, I mean, all of the scenarios we're extremely optimistic, and we thought we've got something wrong here. There's, and we also wanted to just step away from the crisis situation, and this is the value of futures work. It's an opportunity to try to look back at the past and to imagine the future, and to really try to figure out what are the underlying drivers of change in this region, and how are they going to shape the region 15, 20 years from now. So then we came up with a, we borrowed, with Matt Burroughs here at, at, the, at the council, we borrowed the framework from the National Intelligence Council's Global Trends document, um, which looks at drivers in terms of both trends, things that you can project out with some certainty, like demography or, or um, natural resource stresses, and uncertainties, which are phenomena that you expect will shape the region, but you can't really predict the direction that it's going to go. Um, so when it comes to drivers, we, we, picked, we came up with four key trends. One is asymmetric demography, which refers to the imbalance of the dem in terms of the demographic trends in the region, where you have an aging population in Europe, a youth bulge bul in the Middle East and North Africa, and then an incredibly rapidly growing youthful population south of the Sahel. And this imbalance is going to shape the region over the next 20 years. Shifting natural resource trends is also a trend. We know that demand for food and water is likely, water scarcity and food scarcity is a major vulnerability for the Mediterranean. They're also particularly vulnerable to <coughs> commodity price swings. And we also expect um, you know, vulnerabilities related to climate change, drought, floods, and natural disasters given the arid and semi-arid nature of the entire Mediterranean. We also expected the ongoing empowerment of individuals and the spread of personalized technologies. This is a more and more connected population. And intensifying flows, both in terms of regional and global trade through the, Mer the Mediterranean's major maritime passageways, as well as the kind of growth of illicit economies, organized criminal networks, and, and migration, um, obviously. Um, when it comes to uncertainties as drivers of the sh that will shape the Mediterranean out to 2030, we picked three. 
I think the first um, is geopolitics. Uh, we expect that the political trajectories of the region's key powers, Algeria, Egypt, and Turkey, will be profoundly, will profoundly shape the Mediterranean out to 2030. And, and the, the way these countries develop is, 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 difficult, is difficult to foresee. Also, the roles of external powers, like the US. I think there's more uncertainty about the US and the Mediterranean now than, than there was a few months ago. China and Russia. How, will Russia be able to sustain uh, the, the kind of role that it seeks to, to, to um, take up in the Middle East and North Africa? You know, that's, that's uncertain. Identity politics is another uncertainty that we identify. This is going to shape the region, but in ways we can't predict. Weak and failing states are um, giving way to a, a kind of wrenching debate about what people are asking themselves who they are and who counts and who doesn't count as members of their community in a, in a new way. Um, and then the last uncertainty is about the economies of this, of, this, um, of this region. There's been an incredible amount of turbulence prior to and in, in the aftermath of the Arab Spring. And you know, we don't know um, how that will develop. So then we came up with four scenarios. Um, and hopefully the titles of the scenarios are sufficiently <coughs> evocative that I don't have to get into, into details about them. Um, but the first, the first two erosion and drawbridges. These two scenarios prioritize what happens in the region itself, in the coastal states and particularly in the weak and failing states of the region. They look at weak governance, they assume lack of agency or reduced agency amongst the states, and they prioritize kind of rapidly shifting identity politics. We also expect in these scenarios low levels of political will and capability within the EU and amongst Russia and China and extra regional powers to kind of come to terms with the underlying drivers. Erosion is a natural phenomenon. This is more, this is like a default scenario for us where states experience a continuing real and perceived sense of loss of control, um, really wrenching debates about citizenship, shifting identities, and governments that are forced to try to manage the centrifugal politics that threaten to spin out of control. In the drawbridges scenario, this is similar to the erosion scenario, but it's a more populist scenario where states and in the region and the EU are able to upper, muster up a little bit more agency to affect the region, but they focus on re reducing their risk exposure to the region around the basin rather than addressing the underlying problems. You can imagine an EU with a hollow diplomatic stat strategy for the region, the kind of fortress European states working against the EU. This is a protectionist scenario with competing nationalisms and a risk management approach. Our second two scenarios prioritize more geopolitical elements of the Mediterranean. They assume more agency for the states there, as well as for Russia, China, the US, and European Union. The third one, power play. This is a scenario where conflict and political disintegration escalate and then um, engage key global and regional powers. They see vulnerabilities, but an inability to withdraw completely from the region, so they need to stay connected. And there are shifting alliances based on mutual interests here. Here in this scenario, the major powers and the regional powers slide along a continuum of conflict and co cooperation as events on the, on the um, ground evolve. And then our last scenario, which perhaps is most positive or optimistic, although we didn't intend to write it this way. We, we wanted all four to have elements of positive and, and negative developments. But in the Club Med scenario, 
Um, there's a real fear, you know, the Mediterranean region becomes a priority for, for global powers. And there's a fear that if this region spins out of control with worldwide ripple effects, the major powers will begin to realize that they do have overlapping interests in addressing some of the underlying drivers here. In this scenario, state and non-state actors engage to try to manage and regulate the flow, intensification, and reduce uncertainties around the region. There's some economic growth globally in an environment that ultimately allows for the talent of the Middle East and North Africa region to be unleashed in, in terms of building a sort of startup economy and enabling some of these highly educated um, young people to, to deliver for themselves and their economies. In this scenario, there are still differences amongst the major powers, particularly in the US and the EU, which we, we expect, but they aren't working against one another in terms of their approaches, and they're pulling more or less in the same direction. So then on the last section of our paper is about a strategy recommendation, a sort of framework for strategy. And I have to say that we wrote this before the election, and <clears throat> um, we chose to look at the to make strategic recommendations for the US, for the EU, and NATO. And now upon reflection, it looks like our, you know, with a Trump, um, America first strategy, a kind of transactional focus in terms of his relationships, it may be in some ways incompatible with some of the framework, with the framework that we suggested. But we, I also expect there to be a sharp focus on counterterrorism in the Trump administration. Um, and a prioritize, he'll prioritize intelligence counterterrorism, and perhaps this will be a hook for NATO and the EU to really step up in terms of their leadership in the region. Um, in addition to what Ambassador Vershbo um, suggested earlier, I think it's really important for NATO to focus more on its political role. That means having the hard discussions within the NAC about things like Syria um, and Iran, and elevating some of these strategic questions in their consultations with their partners in the region, and, and doing what they can to align their threat, threat assessments and their perceptions of what's happening in the Mediterranean, and thinking hard about what it means for NATO to be a political alliance as well as a military one in the context of the, of the Mediterranean. And our recommendation, our framework on the EU is really to actually take a hard look at the EU itself and come to term, manage the Brexit process, take the European global strategy seriously and have a hard discussion about what it actually means to project resilience abroad, come up with a sort of strategic ambition for CSDP, and really work on integrating NATO and, and, and the EU, particularly on the maritime um, um, and other um, avenues for cooperation in the South. So I'll, I'll leave it at there. There's a lot more in the report, um, but that's hopefully less than eight minutes. <laughs> Thanks, look forward, to the, look forward to the discussion. Thank you very much. I think <coughs> we'll, we'll come back to some of the scenarios in the, the Q&A. With that, uh, Mr. Ambassador, please. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for hosting me. It's always good to be back at the Atlantic Council. Uh, and thank you for sharing this report. Uh, first of all, I like the colors, yeah. all the colors of the, this great sea, the sea among the two lands, uh, but also the content. Um, it looks that by looking at 2030, we can have a long time span. But if we project the Mediterranean against the background of history, 50 years is a very, very short term. That's why I like that uh, by introducing the report, you mentioned Fernand Brodel and his reports on history and the way we should learn from, from a sea that has always been a channel 
uh, a bridge between different worlds, uh, bringing ideas, civilizations, uh, exchanging, exchanging trade, uh, also ideologies and religion. We are in the aftermath of years when we were you know, mentioning slogans like the end of history or that uh, the world might be flat. History is not ended and the world is definitely not flat. Uh, we experience this every single day. Uh, and there's nothing like uh, our sea, our common sea, to, to, to tell us and confirm this. Um, there are new dynamics. Uh, uncertainties, but allow me, Lisa, to recall that we never had certainties uh, in our part of the world. So this is not a new situation. Uh, there are new ideas coming up. There are new ideologies, which is something different from ideas. <clears throat> but for the first time since, since many, many years, we have people moving and people coming. Uh, this has to do with uh, what is going on on the southern shore of the Mediterranean. But you have to go beyond that, because those countries, that area, is just a transitway. <clears throat> Uh, what happened in recent years uh, uh, in Northern Africa uh, has been defined with a very telling expression, the uncorking of Africa. So the instability that occurred in a number of countries uh, after, after the Arab Springs, uh, or better, whose Arab Springs were just you know, a sign, a phenomenon, created a possibility for, for thousands and thousands of people coming from south of Sahel to move north. Uh, and this has created a number of problems that are you know, affecting our daily life in Europe. And here I introduce a remark to Europe. You know, uh, I come from a very peculiar country. Uh, I was born in Venice. If you if you're happen to visit uh, the beautiful church on San Marco Square and you are on the top uh, of the church, <coughs> in a bright blue sky day, you can see the Alps. Yeah. But so Europe is there. At the same time, that church is a reminder of the long-lasting relations with the southern eastern part of Europe, with Constantinople. So there is a natural link. And we are between these two, these two quarters. So divided amongst two different realities. Um, in one of your scenarios, the, the last one, you mentioned Club Med. Um, where Italy is standing in the Mediterranean, or in Central Europe. Uh, the most important and largest German land, Bavaria, trade more with Italy than with the rest of Germany. So this has to be always taken into, into consideration. But get back to Mediterranean, and let's address what is considered by our public opinions nowadays probably the most pressing, urgent issue, migration. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you have to deal with uh, this phenomenon, because we cannot label migration as an emergency anymore, this would be a huge mistake, you have to, to go short term, address what is going on every single day, and migrants uh, are not arriving by plane, you cannot detain them uh, at the airport, they're arriving on a ship, ships that, that very often cannot make it and too many people are dying every single day. So that's why there is uh, an obligation to save their lives. 
But once you have saved your lives, and this is dictated by your own consciousness, before the obligations that we all share with the law of the sea. So you have to do that, and you want to do that. But then what next? We bring them where? To Europe. Because being Italy or Malta, I can see my, my friend, <coughs> my president, because Malta is the president uh, 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 in office of the EU this um, month, this six months. Both Italy and Malta are Europe. So uh, first and foremost, they are the external border of a larger identity of 28 countries. So you have to deal with the phenomenon, not only once you bring them and you have to, to assess the situation to, to check whether they are entitled <coughs> to, to receive asylum or if they can label uh, illegal migrants because they're only coming for economic reasons. So they have no paper and uh, all the European countries are entitled to, to return them to their uh, um, country of origin. But what is more important is to tackle and afford the root causes of migration. So that's why it is important that we get back to Africa. We cannot, we cannot refer to the Mediterranean if we have not clear in our mind the huge continent, the great problems, the great opportunities of Africa. This is where we have to go, this is where to have invest, this is where we have to, to, to take care of. Uh, migration is an issue that uh, is debated by our, our public opinions, uh, is the topic of today. It is strongly uh, uh, naturally linked with another concept which is becoming you know, the daily topic uh, for uh, the kitchen table discussion, which is security. Security both in our countries and when it comes to protecting our borders. Um, speaking about security, of course, there are new responsibilities, both for the EU and NATO. Let's start with NATO, because we are at the Atlantic Council, and of course, it is important to share with our uh, American friends uh, new ideas about, about NATO. Of course, uh, when, when the alliance was formed here and the treaty was signed here in this capital city back in 1949, the world was different, the mission was different. So in a way, what we have now might be labeled as obsolete. The point is that we have to, to go for new uh, issues, <coughs> new uh, 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 security concerns, and the alliance, and I agree with you, Lisa, as a political alliance before, before uh, 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 a military alliance, has to tackle new realities. Uh, at the Warsaw Summit last summer, uh, the uh, heads of state of the alliance confirmed that while it is important to protect our northern and eastern borders, so going to the core issue of the alliance, the southern flank, to use a NATO jargon, is absolutely crucial. Uh, so you need both military presence, but at the same time, political and cultural. So all the panoply of instruments that the uh, uh, political alliance has to show. And NATO is only effective and viable when the most important uh, member of the alliance invests in it, on it. EU. Uh, we are in the process of reshaping our, our union. Uh, we will be celebrating in Rome uh, uh, next March, the 60th anniversary of, of the uh, Treaty of Rome. <coughs> there too, 
since the time six head of state and government signed the treaty uh, back in 57, the world has changed, Europe has changed, we are much more stronger, our economies are much more stronger, we have been able to, to, to uh, uh, attract new countries. We did not enlarge ourselves. We accepted a number of countries' requests to be part of our union because these countries were sharing our ideas, were sharing our, uh, our uh, uh, project. So this has been the most dynamic democratic process ever conceived. We should not forget that. And, and we should keep that in mind. We have peace in Europe. Uh, when, when uh, uh, back in 89, we had the uh, uh, geopolitical shock, uh, countries, members of the EU, were enjoying peace. Those countries of Europe that were not <coughs> part of the EU, namely the Western Balkans, fell into the tragedy of a civil war. So this shows that the EU is a great peace project. Of course, we need two new ideals, we need new projects, and at the core is the Mediterranean. Because from the Mediterranean is where <coughs> our civilization comes from. Uh, it's not just a border, <coughs> it's not just an external side, it's something which is absolutely in our soul, is deep in our, in our history. Italy, of course, can be very, very uh, proactive on this. I would only uh, name here uh, two countries which are absolutely crucial to increase our uh, common European security and uh, that are of great importance for Italy. First is Egypt. Egypt is the most important Arab country. Egypt is a nation. It's not one of those many tribes with flags. It's a real state, it's a real nation, so it is important that Egypt is an active player in the Mediterranean, and I salute the uh, Trump administration new interest towards Egypt. And then we have Libya. Libya is uh, uh, a good friend of Italy. <coughs> Libya is our neighbor, so we have been exchanging uh, ideas, people, since, uh, since ever. Uh, Lepsis mania is, is a, a beautiful reminder of our common uh, civilization. Um, and, you know, when it comes to civilization, not always it has been good and friendly. We had wars. We, we had terrible fights. We had confrontation. But also we had people-to-people -people connection. So, in a way, we are deeply connected. Libya is still in search of its own identity. S Libya still is fiercely divided. The many components uh, of that unique country are still uh, uh, opposing one another. Italy is trying to, to not to impose a solution. Because at the end of the day, we have all learned that you cannot export a solution. <coughs> you have to, to be part and you have to, to encourage others to find their own point of, of equilibrium. And this is what we are trying to do. We are trying to support Libya staying together and as long as we do so, we increase European security, security we increase <coughs> Western security. We also help Libyan people to f exploit <coughs> the huge potential of that uniquely rich country, because Libya is a rich country. So this is what we're trying to do. And also to restore, to restore a sense of national uh, uh, identity. 
Um, I do remember President uh, Obama um, in one of the G8 meetings that I attended uh, in my career as Sherpa, uh, reminding, reminding uh, with this deep intellectual uh, approach, uh, Hobbes. And Hobbes was you know, uh, 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 reminding us that strength and power are prerogatives of the state. So we have to make sure that the Libyan state is in power, is effective, and can really be considered by Libyan people as their, as their, as their legitimate representative. Once Libya restores its own security and identity, this will have an immediate impact on migration. So you will stop seeing all these poor people, desperate people, <coughs> that cross the desert and finally enter into Libya, cross into Libya. They are sold from one tribe to the other, and almost always what they pay as ticket fall into the hands of terrorists, because are the terrorists who are managing this awful business. Once it's there, Libya will be safe, will be secure, and also Libya will stop being you know, the typical uh, 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 object of history dictated by others. You mentioned uh, global powers. Mm. We want to avoid Libya again to become the battleground for the geopolitical interests of many countries who are not interested in the sake of Libyan people, but simply of keeping an instability that will open up you know, opportunities for those who want to exploit this. And this is what Italy is not willing to do. So we want to do so with uh, our European partners and, of course, with the United States. Because, make no mistake, if you want to have security in the Atlantic, you have to be security in that particular sea, which is close to the Atlantic, which is in a way interlinked with the Atlantic, which is the Mediterranean. So let's hope that uh, the beautiful colors <laughs> that you put on your cover here uh, can be bright again in our sea. Well, <clears throat> thank you very much. And uh, just right over to uh, Dr. Slope. Great. Thank you. I thank you for the invitation. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. And congratulations to the authors of the report. Um, I find it hard enough to predict what's going to happen in this region a week from now. Uh, so I think trying to do it 13 years out from now is, is particularly ambitious. But I think the way you, you framed it is, is helpful. Um, certainly with, within the Obama administration, in which I served for five years, there was a growing recognition of the important role of the Eastern Mediterranean, and particularly of the role that North Africa and the Middle East were playing in European politics and in our engagement with Europe. Uh, there was a joke within the State Department that the best place to work on the Middle East was from the European Bureau. Uh, and certainly when Secretary Kerry uh, woke up frequently on Saturday mornings and decided to call his, his European friends, it was rarely to talk about bilateral issues, but it was to talk about ways that we could jointly address all of the challenges that we were facing across the Middle East. Even my position, I think, shows 
how the State Department's thinking about the region has evolved. As Aaron said, half of my portfolio was Southern Europe, which was the traditional State Department focus on Turkey, Greece, and Cyprus. The other half of my portfolio was focusing on Eastern Mediterranean affairs, which was essentially code for tracking everything our Middle East Bureau was doing, since that was what we were talking to the Europeans about. So in a way, I almost spent more of my time working on Syria, Iraq, Libya, ISIS, refugees, and foreign fighters than I did on some of the traditional bilateral concerns uh, we had with our, our European partners. What I think has been interesting over the last couple of years that I was working on the region is if you look at the challenges that Europe was facing, and the core challenges that really got at the, the, the key principles guiding the EU, those challenges came from, from southern Europe. Uh, if you look at the financial crisis that hit many southern European countries, and you look at the migration crisis, which because of geography principally affected southern European countries, you see the challenges to two of the twin pillars of the, the EU itself, which was the idea of, of free movement uh, with the migration crisis raising a debate about whether or not Schengen and open borders was something that the Europeans wanted to continue. And if you look at the financial crisis in southern Europe, it started to call into question whether or not the single currency was, was a viable long-term project. And so I think as with, with lots of things that are taken for granted, it's easier to take them for granted when they're working. When there's challenges and there's crises that, that bring these things under strain is, is when you really see uh, the, the likely longevity of, of these projects. I think there's also an important role for the countries of Southern Europe to, to play going ahead. Uh, there's certainly going to be a lot of focus in this coming year on major elections that are happening in Northern Europe. Uh, we have elections in the Netherlands, in France, and in Germany. And those are going to be key determinants of, of the, the likely direction that, that Europe is, is going to take, particularly in terms of whether it shifts further right uh, and ends up matching where, where we are in the United States in terms of having a leader that is calling into question some of these principles that have been underpinning the liberal order and certainly the transatlantic relationship uh, over the last couple of, of decades. Uh, Ambassador Virschbau outlined some of the, the various uh, formations and institutions that have been set up in, in recent years to try and focus on, on the, the Southern Med. Uh, just last weekend, there was a meeting in Lisbon of the, the EU Mediterranean countries. Uh, so clearly, there is a recognition within some of these countries that they have a continued role to play. Uh, and they set out a, a statement of, of, of their meeting and identified future meetings. So clearly, within these countries, there is a recognition that, that they want to play a role um, going forward. Let me say a brief word about two uh, sectoral issues and then, and then about two countries within the region. Uh, there's already been a lot said about the issue of, of refugees and migration. Uh, certainly, this is going to be a, a situation, I think the ambassador was right, that we can no longer call it an immediate crisis, but it is going to be something that, that is going to continue. I think especially as we start to move towards spring and, and the weather gets nice, you're, you're likely to see more movement again <coughs> with, within the Mediterranean. Uh, the EU, I think, has, has taken significant steps in trying to develop an institutional response to this through the development of um, some, some new border and, and coast guard mechanisms. But you still have far too many people languishing within Italy and, and Greece, and more needs to be done at EU level to reduce the burden on some of these countries uh, in terms of, of disseminating uh, refugees through, through other parts of, of Europe. 
Um, and obviously there's been lots of discussion within this country of, of uh, what the U.S. stance on, on this is likely to be going forward, which, which personally I, I think is, is unfortunate. Um, as Ambassador Versbaugh mentioned, the, the, the NATO, NATO also started to play a role uh, in addressing this crisis, which the, the U.S. was a part of in terms of a, a monitoring mission. So there has already been, been somewhat of a, of, a, of a transatlantic and an EU and, and, and NATO institutional response to, to, to these crises. Second, the, the theme of energy, I think, is, is important. And the, the report rightly drew attention to this in terms of the region being awash in, in energy, I think was the, the phrasing. And that's particularly important given the efforts that the EU has made to try and diversify its energy resources away from a dependence on, on Russia, given what we've seen in terms of some of the manipulation in recent years on, on Ukraine and, and Eastern European partners. The challenge, of course, in accessing all of these Mediterranean energy resources is that politics and, and disputes between states within the region makes it difficult to, to transit, to <coughs> withdraw, to, to get these, these energy resources out of the Mediterranean and, and into the European market. Uh, Turkey, of course, has, has conflicts with, with several states in the region over the, the demarcation of the, the EEZ, the Exclusive Economic Zone. Uh, in, in Cyprus, there have been energy resources d discovered offshore, but ongoing negotiations within Cyprus make uh, the, the removal of, of some of these resources and the question of who owns these, these resources much more politically sensitive. Uh, still waiting to see how some of the Israeli fields and, and other places uh, play out, uh, but politics is going to continue to complicate the question of, of energy extraction in, in the region. Uh, a brief word on, on two countries. One word that nobody has mentioned uh, so far yet in this discussion is, is Turkey. Uh, and Turkey certainly was the country that I spent the, the most amount of time working on while I was in government and have continued to follow since because I think it's central to, to so much of, of what is happening in, in the region. Uh, in terms of, of resolving the, the conflict in, in Syria, and particularly the next stage in the, the attack on ISIS, is going to be the question of, of who takes Raqqa. And to those of you who have been following the, the Syria saga, you know that there's likely to be a big showdown between Turkey and the Kurds in terms of who the U.S. and the other coalition allies end up partnering with in the defeat <coughs> against uh, ISIS. Um, I could spend hours on, on the whole saga as well as the question of, of Kurdology in the region, uh, but certainly that's going to be something to watch and, and see how that plays out in, in, in the coming weeks and months because I think that's, that's going to have a significant impact on, on the new administration's desire to, to reset relations with, with Turkey and how that relationship uh, works moving forward. Um, there's also going to be cause for concern to see how things develop domestically within Turkey. I, certainly we saw the, the coup attempt last summer. Uh, there's been a continued crackdown on, on civil society, on, on Kurdish <coughs> politicians, on journalists. And now we're in the midst of an ongoing debate about constitutional reforms with a referendum expected in early April that if successful would significantly strengthen the powers of the, the, the Turkish president. Um, there's been rumors of, of debates within the White House about whether to keep Turkey where it currently is in the European division or to stick it in the, the Middle East division. And I think that really reflects a lot of the debates that, that have been happening about whether Turkey really is and, and can be seen as a, a European partner and ally. Certainly it's a, a member of, of NATO, uh, but it also occupies a very interesting geography in terms of bordering a lot of the countries in the Middle East that are, are currently in, in crisis. <coughs> 
Uh, the last country that I want to say a, a word about is, is Cyprus. Um, and I see the, the, the DCM from, from, from Cyprus here today. I wanted to end on a, a good news story, and I continue to hope that, that Cyprus will be. Uh, I think it's been pretty remarkable over the last two years to see the amount of progress that has been made in terms of negotiations between the Greek Cypriot and Turkish Cypriot leaders in moving forwards toward a, a settlement in, in Cyprus. If that was successful, it would obviously bring an enormous amount of benefit to the, the region. Uh, for one, it would serve as a, a beacon of hope to, to a lot of these conflict-ridden countries that it is possible to solve problems through negotiation rather than violence. <coughs> uh, it would free up a lot of the age-old complications between NATO and the EU in terms of the abilities of, of those two institutions to work together. And as I mentioned before, it would, it would make some of the energy questions within the, the region simpler as well. So I will leave it there. Oh, well, great. Thank you very much. Uh, and that sort of ends the, the, the moderated discussions panel. And we're going to turn it over to the audience now for questions and answers. Uh, so just raise your hand. And I, somebody will be walking around with a microphone. And I will be using the moderator's prerogative uh, when questions don't, ask, don't end in question marks, but begin to move on into statements. So uh, sir, right here in the front. No race. Uh, I'm Harlan Owen with the Atlantic Council. Thanks. Uh, for your presentation. I've not yet read the report, but Magnus, I look forward to reading it. I wanted to expand a bit on uh, Ambassador Verschbau's uh, very useful introductory comments. Uh, since about 2004, I've been on the advisory board of both Supreme Allied Commander Europe and European Command Commander. And about 2004, 2005, when Admiral Grog Johnson was uh, Allied Forces South Commander, he gave a very interesting briefing in which he had four major problems. The first was immigration. The second was um, environmental issues, which included drought. The third was terrorism. And the fourth was Turkey. You may recall that even then, relations with Turkey were very rocky because the Turks did not allow the third ID to transfer through to Iraq. At that stage, Jim Jones was uh, secure and really pushed the Mediterranean dialogue and pushed the relationship with the EU. It seems to me that despite all that effort then, we haven't really made a lot of progress. And so let me offer two ideas that I think should be useful, and I'll put them in the forms of questions. First, to what degree do you think the American Unified Command Plan is now a real problem in dealing with the Mediterranean? Uh, back then, the deputy for European Command was, in essence, the African commander. And that also empowered the Supreme Allied Command of Europe for obvious reasons. Today, we've got four unified commands that are dealing with the region. You've got European Command, you've got Central Command, you've got Africa Command, and you've got Special Forces Command. And I think that's been a real detriment. Second, given that Turkey is going facing east, and God knows what's going to happen there. I've been arguing for about a year and a half, given the situation with Russia and Ukraine. NATO needs to make a real strategic pivot to the Black Sea. Now, that means politely both Bulgaria and Romania but there are problems in Bulgaria, so it means re-strengthening or strengthening ties with Romania. We've tried to do that on the margin with new command structures, so forth. But what degree do you think that maybe changes on the US side would be very useful to encourage and strengthen the Mediterranean issue? And second, can we really make a much more serious pivot towards the Black Sea to compensate for what's happening in Turkey and to compensate to some degree what's happening in Ukraine? And before we take up that question, I should have mentioned at the outset is that Magnus here, uh, while not speaking on the panel, will be available to answer questions. And I think that one falls right in your wheelhouse. Yeah. Uh, and I believe Amanda <coughs> could probably take a stab at it as well. 
So, uh, so, so I'll pick that one up right, right out of the gate. So Harlan, thank you, uh, thank you so much for, for both of those points. So uh, uh, amen to both of those. Uh, it's, uh, it was not under consideration for this report, but on, the, on, on your first point on the, on the, uh, on the command structure, I, I totally take your point. Um, that's, that's worthwhile looking into, and I think it, we'll, we'll take that on board uh, and, and do some additional thinking, because we're obviously also hoping to, to continue uh, continue this work on the on the Black Sea. Um, I'll add another amen, um, uh, and and that's that's very much on our radar too. And and that's uh, that's upcoming work as well here at uh, at the Atlantic Council. So so stay tuned. Maybe Amanda, do you want to pick up there on maybe some of the challenges involved in working with Turkey on maybe the Black Sea issues and uh, maybe the del delineation of Turkey within our government where it sits. Uh, yeah, I, the, the, the challenges of working with Turkey are certainly many on the political front, uh, but, but they're also challenging internally on, on the bureaucratic front. I, as you identified with the commands, it's the same problem we have in the State Department and it's the same problem we have within the NSC, which is that Turkey is a real seam issue. Uh, so Turkey, of course, is within UCOM, uh, but the operations that were being conducted out of Turkey fall within CENTCOM. And this ended up causing some, some practical complications as <clears throat> Turkey, I think, likes to view themselves as part of UCOM. They see themselves as part of the NATO alliance and, and they want to be treated as such. Um, I think sometimes there was a tendency from the, the CENTCOM way of operating to be dictating a little more what they think Turkey should be doing rather than the UCOM approach, which, which tended to be a little more I, I alliance focused, but, but I see you, you, you understand what, what I mean. Um, Within the State Department, it was a similar seam, and I think this reflects the conversation that's, that's happening within the NSC, even about where it is that, that you place Turkey. I, in bureaucratic terms, I think if you move Turkey in one of those three bodies, it's gonna be very difficult not to move it in the other two, so my own personal preference would be to keep it where it is now. Uh, it is still a, an, an active member of, of, of NATO, uh, and to try and work the, the bureaucratic challenges, but certainly the vast majority of my energy while I was in government government was, was trying to find ways to, to work that seam. Uh, thanks. Uh, Ellen Lapson from the Stimson Center. I'd like to ask the Italian ambassador to say a little bit about Tunisia. Uh, at the end of the Obama administration, there was a sense that, um, you know, it's not all bad news on the Arab side of the Mediterranean and it, some additional effort to try to keep a few of the countries, you know, stable. Uh, is, is worthwhile. Has Italy made any special investments in Tunisia to try to keep that fragile experiment, but that's still largely positive, uh, moving forward? And any of the panel that want to talk about Morocco and Algeria's role, um, are those countries, you know, they're stronger states in terms of security? Have they been effective, in your view, in preventing <coughs> some of the African migration? Morocco obviously is now pushing very hard to become more of an African uh, player and wonder if you think that is, you know, making a difference in the Mediterranean dramas. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for raising the issue of Tunisia, a very, very crucial country. Tunisia was where the Arab Springs were, were born. Tunisia was the first country to, to conclude the process by being able to appoint an elected president. So in a way to, to restore democracy. So from an institutional point of view, this could be labeled as a, an happy ending story. But we should not forget that Tunisia is by far the country where the largest number of foreign fighters come. Uh, 
we do think that this is because, you know, while the country was able to, 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 to uh, initiate and eventually happily conclude a political process, this has not allowed the country to uh, uh, tackle the real urgent problems of the economic crisis. So Tunisia is a country in desperate need of support. Uh, stability of Tunisia is absolutely essential to avoid this void, this sense of uh, distress and desperation might be filled by those who can, are able to attract young people into, into the uh, terrible, terrible ideology of uh, fundamentalism. So this is an issue very, very important for us, for Italy and, and for Europe. We are promoting economic context. We are trying to encourage the country <coughs> to support the political process. Uh, Tunisia, by the way, is uniquely uh, positioned from a strategic point of view uh, because, uh, of course, it's a neighbor country to, to Libya. And uh, this is why we are present there, we invest, but uh, we do think that this cannot be done at national level only. There has to be an engagement of the international community. Um, what happens in Tunisia is affecting our global, our global stability. Sir, right here in the front with the, the blue tie. Oh, we can go. Why don't we just take both at the same time? Because it seemed like there was uh, confusion. So let, let's do it like that. Thank you. Thank you for your presentation. I'm Dr. Rakiz uh, Zarir from uh, the Center of Strategic Studies in Jordan University in Jordan. Uh, thanks for uh, Scowcroft Center. I think it's. Uh, um, I think they faced in the Mediterranean five main challenges for. Uh, the population there. The first one is the peace. The, the peace. How to keep the stability between uh, the peace. The peace between Arab and uh, Israel. The second is the uh, extremism uh, culture. The third is terrorism operation. Fourth is the dictatorism regimes. And the uh, five is. Uh, the uh, just and how to trans transition to uh, uh, just in, uh, in, uh, in in economic and uh, uh, for 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 the the people and make a just a just uh, between the rich countries and the poor countries in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So, what your advice and uh, the, the, to to the country to to, so, to solve and face face and solve these problems, and uh, uh, what the priorities of uh, the, you can uh, advise it for the uh, the uh, people to solve these uh, problems? Thank you. And we can also just take the question from the, the gentleman right in front. I think there was. Did you have your hand up as well? Wait, I can. No, please. Thank you very much. I'm uh, Clive Ajus. I'm the ambassador of Malta. Thank you very much. Uh, congratulations. Uh, I subscribe and endorse completely what Ambassador Varicchio said. I think th these are the solutions which you mentioned. Um, let me use my, my experience. Because when it comes in 2030, how do I see the Mediterranean? 
If the past is the mirror to the future, at best, the Mediterranean is going to be the same. Nothing is going to happen. Nothing is going to change. I've seen every single political initiative, the Barcelona process, Mediterranean dialogue, etc., etc., come hypothecated to one issue in the Mediterranean, which is the Israeli-Palestinian issue. And I am afraid that any other initiative will suffer the same fate. I would really like to, to hear what, how you see this. But over and again, every single initiative ultimately was distilled to the same uh, question we have in the Mediterranean. Thank you very much. And maybe just to make your job even more complicated on the panel, you know, so both addressing sort of advice for um, uh, both economic prosperity in the Mediterranean as well as the challenges posed by the Israeli-Palestinian issue or crisis. Uh, maybe I'd also pose to the panelists uh, the Cyprus issue as well. And so these two, these two sort of intractable conflicts, one hotter than the other, uh, that gets in the way of cooperation and further integration in the Mediterranean. Uh, so I could, maybe, Lisa, do you want to, because yeah, the report I, talks, talks about both of these. Sure. Um, I want to also just uh, respond to the other question. Um, we thought a lot, we made a conscious decision to make this report about the entire Mediterranean and following on some of the themes we talked about earlier in terms of keeping a, a whole of the region mindset, especially when thinking about Turkey. We tried to resist focusing on the Eastern Mediterranean. It wasn't always um, easy. Um, a couple of things that came up for us when we started the project, we really thought energy was going to be one of our key drivers. Um, thinking about the relationship between Algeria and the EU and thinking about the uh, renewables and the fines in the Eastern Mediterranean and that Algeria was going to feature much more prominently in that. We, we subsequently decided that kind of geopolitics and some of the other uncertainties were, were more important. That was a judgment call that we made. Um, but Algeria, we you know, also see as an incredible uncertainty. And there isn't that much expertise, I think, in, in, in Europe about what's happening in Algeria. What are the vulnerabilities of the, dream, of, the, of the regime? What kind of transition could take place? So this is an area that needs a lot more attention um, in terms of just understanding um, the dynamic there. And then in, with, with Morocco, um, when we think about the migration in this paper taking a longer-term view, we see African migration to Europe as the real longer-term driver that will, because of the imbalance in, in demographic trends, will, will, be, will be ongoing for a long time. So to the extent that the EU can work its, its partnership with Morocco, particularly on Africa, but also in terms of technolo te technology investment, Morocco has done incredible amount of work on investing in renewables and their solar and wind, for which the potential, this is where we use the word, the region is awash in energy. It's not just the Eastern Mediterranean, it's solar and it's wind. Um, so I would, I would think that the focus should be on partnering with Morocco on those two, on those, those two issues. Um, Cyprus, um, I was in Cyprus in, in December, um, just when the negotiations were breaking down. Um, but I was really encouraged. I think it was the day that the negotiations broke down over the um, over some of the territory territory issue and the security issue. But I was still really impressed with how much positive momentum there was on on the ground um, amongst the, the the Greek Cypriots. And I think that if there could be a breakthrough on this, it would provide a positive story coming out of the Eastern Mediterranean that could 
really profoundly changed the way that uh, the narratives coming out of the Eastern Mediterranean and perhaps put a little um, fuel into the NATO and the EU to really step up their, their cooperation on the number of issues that Ambassador Vershbo touched on that were agreed at the NATO summit. Um, Israeli-Palestinian issue, <laughs> um, it's hard to see a window for a breakthrough in the, in the, in the, in the, in the near future, um, but obviously the diplomatic effort and um, needs, needs to continue, but I'll leave it to, to some of the others to take that one on. Yeah, I'll try to, to, to respond to, to, to the two main issues here. One is uh, economy opportunities. Uh, of course, energy is key. Uh, not just having countries of production as a as transit and uh, uh, exporting their production to Europe, as in the case of, of Algeria, namely to, to Italy, as it is for, for Libya. But in the case of the new discoveries off the coast of Egypt, which are able to potentially to completely change the dynamic of the country because <coughs> of the size of that discovery. And also Cyprus. But energy, as we know, if we broaden our approach and we look also elsewhere, urgent energy can, and oil in particular, oil and gas, can be a blessing or a curse. So we have to be careful how you know, these new discoveries might impact on the diplomatic processes. And they come to Cyprus. Cyprus is the longest uh, uh, issue on, uh, on the agenda of the Security Council, since always. Uh, so so uh, it's always there. We are approaching the moment when you know, the two parties of the island have been uh, closer than ever. Uh, I salute also the efforts of, of the uh, United States, what the State Department has done, what my, my good friend Toria Nula has been doing and her, her colleagues, uh, what we have been doing as Europeans, because you know, Cyprus uh, is a member of, of the EU. Uh, so uh, uh, we are reaching a point where we might eventually take out this issue from the United Nations and from, from the Security Council agenda. But here comes energy. So we have to be sure that, that uh, Cyprus does not become, again, another battleground of other interests. They okay. want to, to keep instability. And speaking about battleground and potential instability, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is, of course, epitomized this concept. Uh, uh, now we have a new, new administration, so we look forward <coughs> to the ideas and the proposals that the new administration will put forward. Um, when uh, Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu uh, is in Washington next February 15th, I'm sure this will be one of the issues discussed uh, with, with the president. As always, there, there are two ways to look at, at the uh, Israeli-Palestinian issue. One is to consider that we better solve relations between Israel and Arab states and leave you know, uh, this specific issue aside. And when, when uh, relations between Israel and Arab states are restored, are, are eventually transformed into peaceful relations, uh, developing, developing economic, economic flows, investment, tourism, this is where you know, we might have the conditions for tackling the specific issue of the Israel-Palestine and 
the core issue of the state of uh, status of Jerusalem. Well, then we have the <coughs> other way around. As long as we uh, do not uh, solve this issue, there is no way that Israel might live in peace with other countries. So, uh, as always, you, it's not a matter of out-out. Uh, you have to be able to, to, to combine the two. Uh, um, Secretary Kerry has devoted a great deal of, of his uh, energies, of his time, uh, he had been rather close, but then, you know, it's always a stop and go. And then, eventually, he, he left a little bit aside. Uh, now, of course, as always, when a new administration uh, takes office, uh, the world is hoping that new impetus can be flown. Uh, this is what we are hoping from, from Europe. Uh, we don't, of course, want to leave the initiative to the United States. We want to be active player. But we are fully aware that unless Europe and the United States, if we want to consider the other member of the so-called quartet, so uh, Russia and, and the UN, are on board, there is no way. Uh, but I think that uh, if there is a country that uh, might benefit also from, from uh, uh, restoring uh, uh, um, diplomatic process, is Jordan. Because Jordan is a country faced with great challenges. Uh, the second largest city in, in Jordan is a refugee camp uh, after Amman. Uh, it's a country that has uh, very, very difficult borders with a uh, with, uh, country in, uh, in uh, still uh, you know, uh, looking and searching for, for peace in the south of Iraq. So uh, I think that all, all the efforts should be deployed. But uh, you're right, and I turn to my good friend Ambassador Omolta. Uh, <coughs> all comes from Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem is our, our cradle. Uh, whoever goes to Jerusalem falls, you know, a victim of a so-called Jerusalemite. So, so uh, you cannot skip that. Uh, this, uh, this, a part uh, of our world, uh, of our history, of our civilization. So there is no way that unless uh, uh, Jerusalem is able to be a, a, a place of peace, of peaceful uh, coexistence, of, of religion, of the three uh, Bible religion, of, uh, of two different peoples, uh, we will all pay the price. I would just, I agree that, that in general there's, there's a long history within the region of bilateral disputes complicating progress and cooperation with, within the region. I'd certainly the, the Turkey-Israel um, challenges in the last couple of years prevented Israel from opening an office at NATO, which then blocked other Arab countries from, from, from opening an in, in office at NATO, uh, which at least that's, that's one conflict that, that has been resolved for, for now. Um, on the question of, of Cyprus, I, I personally believe if it was just left up to the leaders on the island, we would have a deal. Um, I think the two leaders themselves have become a, a remarkably long way, and I think there is general agreement between the two of them on, on the broad range of issues. The challenge at, at this point is, is that we have Greece and Turkey involved, and it's getting to the really sensitive issues of security, of troop presence, and, and of guarantees. And, and that's why I think we're, we're hitting a point where it's much more complicated, uh, but, but we're also at a point where there's actually a, a process in place. I mean, we've had the, the Greek and Turkish foreign ministers engaging. Um, we had a series of, of meetings in, in Switzerland, and we've got a process of, of ongoing um, diplomacy. Um, I think, unfortunately, the, the window is soon going to be narrowing uh, to have a deal, but, but I think we, we still have a, a, a moment here. 
On the Israeli-Palestinian issue, I, I think you're right. Um, if, if President Trump is, is to believe, uh, believed, his, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, is, is going to achieve a great breakthrough. So, so maybe this, this will be resolved soon. Um, I think uh, President Trump, though, is also going to get a crash course in what we've been talking about, which is that policy decisions and, and choices are, are interlinked. Um, personally, I think it's going to be incompatible for him to move the US Embassy to Jerusalem and resolve the Israeli-Palestinian um, conflict and, and to do both uh, simultaneously. So we'll just take, we have the last two questions here. I'm sorry, I was that gentleman and then that gentleman, then it'll have to come to me to turn up. Well, we're just not gonna be able to get back there. Sir, we're just gonna take these two questions then we're gonna wrap up. So right here and right here. Right, okay, so we'll take uh, My question. name is Frank Talbot, I'm with Vinda Consulting. Short question. Um, what role do you see for the OSCE in the Mediterranean currently? And um, is there something that this organization can be providing, perhaps in partnership with NATO and the EU? This just gentleman right here on the aisle. Sir, you're looking down right there. Yeah. Let's wait for the microphone, please. Yeah, my name is Hampton Dowling. I'm just a consultant. Kind of more to the point, I, I spent a great deal of time until very recently in Libya and Tunisia and uh, uh, served on the NATO and Sixth Fleet in, in uniform, and I watched our U.S. election when I was in Naples. And it, there's a, certainly probably no area that has more, that's more unstable and has more pent-up energy right now than Central Mediterranean. Um, tomorrow, Libya could go into a full civil war, of which there are very few plans for anybody to engage on that issue. Um, the uh, Russia has now established, again, its only sovereign territory outside of Russia, which is now in Syria with its naval base. And they're quietly renegotiating and reinterpreting the words for the Montreux Treaty, which is governing what type of naval vessels leave the Black Sea going into the Mediterranean. And now, uh, as of this morning, the <coughs> polls of the upcoming elections in Europe don't bode well for their opinions of the EU rather more populist. And for most of the EU nations, the GDP projections continue to go south. So as you look at the uh, forecast that you have going forward, which I haven't had the pleasure of reading and I look forward to it, what happens if things go wrong? I mean, what happens if the economic situation goes south? What happens if you have uh, a, a, a much more rapid expansion from the east in terms of power buildup in the eastern Mediterranean, and you also have an increased actual uptick in migration coming from North Africa. How does that really play out relative to the, uh, the projections that you've put in place here, which obviously uh, are the results of a lot of uh, time okay. and effort? And these are, we have about five minutes to answer these very complicated questions, and so I think we should and with you, Lisa, because I think the second question okay. touches on a lot of the reports, and so maybe Amanda first, then the ambassador, then we'll end with Lisa. I didn't fully hear the first question. Can you uh, the role for the OSCE, if there is any in, 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 in the Mediterranean. Well, maybe we should start with you, then, with the OSCE. Yeah, you're right. OSCE uh, is an organization that has unique privilege of bringing together you know, both North America and, and all of Europe and, and Russia. Uh, by the time, by the time the OIC was was initiated, of, again the shift is moving to the south. 
when Italy takes uh, uh, the presidency of the OECD next year, we'll be focusing a lot on the Mediterranean. Because we, think, we do think that uh, peace and stability, which are the two main uh, goals of the organization, cannot be achieved unless peace and stability are restored in the Mediterranean. So there's a natural extension of the scope of the activity uh, of the organization to the Mediterranean. Uh, even because you know, we are living a time when classical diplomacy, in a way, can you know, become, again, uh, something that we should focus on. So you have the typical and historic process of Russia move, moving to the south. This has always been you know, uh, Russia, Russia uh, strategic goal. So we want to be sure that there's you know, Russia uh, uh, um, presence, growing presence in the Mediterranean uh, goes to the benefit of stability. So having all the members of the organization, including Russia, playing an active role uh, okay. as the uh, active player of the search for stability, the better it is for our security. So uh, to answer your question, yes, uh, the focus will be shifting more and more towards the Mediterranean. Lisa, you want to wrap it sure. up? Sure. Um, a couple of a point on the OSCE. You know, we hadn't um, we hadn't prioritized this in terms of our strategy recommendations, but I fully agree that there could be uh, an important role for the OSCE in terms of traditional diplomacy. Also, thinking about all the bilateral disputes across the Mediterranean that Amanda referred to. You know, this is something <coughs> I, I take on board and we'll, we'll definitely look into. Um, and then on, on if things go badly, you know, I, I think our, our erosion scenario is, uh, speaks to what, what we expect the region to look like if, if things um, do go badly. And, and that scenario, you know, the main characteristics are there's a sense of a loss of control and low, no agency amongst the states or a, per a perception that there is no agency. Um, I don't need to go into details, but I would read the erosion uh, scenario. Well, I'm going to wrap up the panel here, but I'm encouraging everybody not to get up and leave just yet. Uh, but I, I think that there's a lot of things that are going on, and what the report really tries to do is to project forward, as I said, into the future. And it does talk a lot about a lot of the themes that we're building around today, about the challenges of migration, in, potential problems increased with, with populism and in, inward-looking, perhaps xenophobic leaders. And so all of these things are addressed in the report. So if you do have the uh, opportunity to read it, I would pick it up on the way out uh, and at least flip through it. Uh, with that, I would like everybody to thank our speakers uh, for the inter interesting discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> and for this moment, we're going to, uh, before we, we will show a short clip, I'd like to just introduce two more people who are sitting in the audience. It's uh, Jasmine Algamal, who's a senior fellow here at the Brent Scope Crop Center, uh, and Ida Michaelbost. I did my best, thank you. Uh, Norwegian-American journalist and now a documentary filmmaker, which is what, we'll be what they will be talking about. So with that, uh, please play the short clip or the trailer of the documentary Unwanted. And we move out. And we keep leave.
بشار جيش هجم علينا اول هني كنا قاعدين ونايمين كنت خايف ننظره
Check. Okay. Um, so, thank you for taking the time to watch this. It was a, a, a very difficult but very important experience that we had last year, and we wanted to share a little bit about it and about the human face of some of the facts and figures and policy implications that we just heard by the panelists. Right, so now it works, I think, yeah. <laughs> so this is a film that I have wanted to make for a long time. I have worked as a journalist covering the Syrian civil war, and I always felt that we were kind of putting words in other people's mouth. We were talking about their experience, that we hadn't experienced, as if we were the experts. So in, what was it, June 2016, uh, Jasmine and I packed a small camera and some sound equipment and we went to Greece where we met this little boy living in a tent on a gas station. That's where he spends his childhood years. Uh, Menwar, who's six years old, and his family fled the Syrian civil war uh, four months prior to us meeting him, hoping to find peace and a new life in Europe. But when they came to Europe, they found a Europe that didn't want them, a Europe that had closed their borders. And so now the family is sitting by the borders, hoping for a solution and just waiting, counting the days, seeing their lives past them. While we were in the, in the camp, uh, the camp was actually cleared. The police came to take them away. So this little family who is hoping to be able to just start life again, just a normal everyday life, they were faced um, by the decision of whether they were to give up their dream about Germany and a new normal life, or, uh, and cross the border illegally or to follow the, the police to these, what they called prison-like camps. So this is, uh, this is Menor's story. This is the true story about the civil war in Syria. Menor is the true face of this. It's not the rebels, it's not the bombs, it's not ISIS or the army or the ghost cities. It's the victims of war. And who are more a victim of war than the children they are the ones who are being pulled in, into this completely against their will. They are the ones who get their lives completely turned upside down. They are the ones who take Europe's rejection personally, and they are the ones who learn about the world through warfare. <coughs> so yeah, this is Menwar's story, the true story and about the Syrian civil war. You know, Ida and I met last year for the first time, but we actually couldn't have known that three years earlier we were both working on the Syria crisis in very different capacities. So I was working at the Department of Defense as the country director for Syria, and I actually worked for Ambassador Vershbau for a couple of years. And, um, and Ida was working as a journalist covering the Syria crisis um, for M M not MTV, but TV. MTV, TV2, <laughs> TV2. And so uh, through our different capacities, we had become very familiar with the Syria crisis and the numbers and the facts. Um, we knew that about four, you know, there were about last year 4.8 million registered refugees in the neighboring countries alone, half of them children. Um, that in the Med, uh, 360,000 people in 2016 had tried to cross over into Europe via sea, by the, uh, by the water. 5,500 arrivals in 2017 alone this year, in the last month, 300 of those dead or missing at the moment, a quarter of them children. So, so we knew the numbers and we knew the facts, but I don't think anything could have actually prepared us for the human experience and the human side of the story. Um, and I want to turn it over to you to maybe tell a, a very quick um, story about what we saw there. 
Right, yes. Yeah. So as uh, as journalist, no, as Jasmine touches upon, um, my background is in journalism, and I've worked covering this, uh, read reports, TV stories, uh, fact sheets, statistics. Uh, I'm supposed to be an expert on this, giving you know the stories to the people, educating the people. But there was nothing that could have prepared me for what we saw when we came down there. I just couldn't fathom that this was Europe 2016, the chaos. The, the lack of rule, all these children just scattered by the roadside, living in, in broken tents with flies everywhere, Europe in 2016. Um, it was actually, there was a, a, an incident we had, which was kind of in capture said. Um, <clears throat> well, first actually, let me go back a little bit to the situation. There's basically just random tents put up by the road, the side of the road. There is, there, you would think that it's more organized when you read about it in reports, people gathering facts, etc. but it's not. There's nobody there who, who was in charge of this camp. There's some volunteer organizations to pop by every now and then, but generally they are just left to fend for themselves. Uh, there's complete confusion, very much lack of information. The people don't know their rights, they don't know where they're going, where they can go. Um, and in the middle of this, you, you know, you have the children living their lives being pulled along into this, living in danger, on the run, scared, lost, thrown to the side, tossed around. And then on top of it all, they're just turned into a number, a statistic that represents problems and challenges. And the story I wanted to talk about is, uh, it was at the very end, as you could see in this clip, uh, at nightfall when the police came to, to gather all the refugees in this camp, uh, the family we got to know, they packed up to leave. They wanted to cross the border illegally with human smugglers. And uh, I'm holding a camera. So as the children that I've gotten to know are leaving and they're saying bye to me, I can't reply to them because you get my voice on the camera. So I'm just called, just like the rest of the world, watching them you know, run on to their next chapter. And so I turn off the camera and I ran after them into the field to, to you know, be able to say my final goodbye to them and wish them good luck. And I was able to catch up with the mother because the mother was actually pregnant going through all of this. So she was falling behind the others and she started crying and she told me, you have to leave, they will kill you if they catch you with a camera here, the smugglers will kill you. So I, I stood behind and I watched them run into the forest. And, uh, and that's when it kind of happened to me. I, I wasn't a professional anymore. I wasn't a journalist there to cover, you know, the latest news story or make a film. I wasn't guarded, I became human. And I just broke down, started crying. And that's when Jasmine found me on this field in the dark. And she kind of collected me. And we were to return to our hotels where we could go to warm, good beds. While Menoir, a six-year-old boy, is running alone with human smugglers in a dark forest with the police chasing him. We're going to go home to our beds and sleep safe. Yeah, it was, a, it was a really surreal experience after the incident that Ida just described, going back to the tents that, that they had left. And um, the moment that we, we kind of both broke down was seeing a tiny little shoe 
that had been left behind and we knew it, it was his favorite shoe. It was like a Spider-Man shoe and he didn't, Superman, yes. and he didn't have time to collect it before, um, before he left and it was really heartbreaking. But uh, we only have a minute left so I just finally wanted to say because you talked about some of the implications of this refugee crisis and the migration crisis and, and uh, the, the three things or the three things that you mentioned that we saw uh, in person was one, just this completely lost generation, both of children and of adults adults that had given up hope for the future because as one man told me, I'm 65 years old, I'm not gonna start again. It, it is now all about my children. And this lost generation of children who had been languishing in these camps with no education, um, with, no, with no sort of um, skills to be able to use to integrate and uh, contribute positively to whatever society they end up in. The other was this massive loss of identity that we were seeing unfold right before our eyes where the longer they stayed there, and especially for the children, they just had no concept of why they were not being allowed into, this, uh, into another country. In their case, it was Germany that they wanted to go to. And the longer they stayed there, the, longer, the more that their identities that they had known, uh, Syrian, Muslim, Arab, the more that that became synonymous with dangerous, unwanted, unwelcome. Um, and it was very clear that we were watching this process where people start to think of themselves as the other. And finally related to that, we all know what happens when people start thinking of themselves as the other and who are being told that they're the other is that the risk of radicalization and the risk of terrorism just exponentially increases. Not because these children were particularly wired to become little terrorists just because they were in a refugee camp, but because refugees and terrorists thrive on chaos and uncertainty and hopelessness and loss of identity. And that is what we saw unfolding uh, before our eyes and what was so difficult to see. So ironically, it struck us that by closing its borders to try to keep these problems out, these European countries were inadvertently creating those problems that we are all in our different capacities going to have to deal with for many, many years forward. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much for that, and, and this concludes our program. But first, a special thanks to uh, to Ida and Jasmine for that presentation. I thought it was um, I thought it was quite powerful. I have I have two kids myself of, of that age, so that that certainly hits home and, and makes you sit up straight. Uh, um, and I think uh, connects us all to the to the very important issues that we're all working on. Uh, and also thanks to to all our speakers and to to Aaron for for sharing us through the the presentation. Um, obviously, this doesn't come come together on its own. And we have a whole team of folks that I work this: Amanda, Emma, Clementine, Lauren, Maria. The end is shown that I helped put all this together. So, so as we have suggested, we're going to keep working on these issues moving forward. Um, we hope to connect with you again. So, so stay tuned for more. And again, thank you so much for coming.